This is the Anatomy of Resistance podcast, where we the people won and why. My name is Anthony Grimes with my co-host, Erica Chenoweth. Erica's book, co-authored with Maria Steffen, Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict, has quickly become a must-read for the contemporary activist. On every episode of this podcast, we'll break down successful moments of resistance and talk about what happened, and most of all, discuss what inspiration and lessons might apply to our everyday life. Our hope, especially under this inhumane presidential administration, is that through these conversations, we can all innovate the process of resistance in order to increase our collective effectiveness. Welcome to the show. It is important in this world to transcend hatred and fear. Have no fear, have no hatred. And let's build, let's build communities like this one. Let's fight and struggle for the best of this world. That was Oscar Lopez Rivera speaking at a rally in Chicago upon his release. Some have called him the Mandela of the Americas. After 35 years in prison, Oscar Lopez Rivera was released last March after an executive clemency order made by President Obama his last week in office. That fact is important not just for the significance of freeing a political prisoner, but because Puerto Rico, as the last remaining colony on the planet, and the U.S.'s own beachhead is in dire economic crisis. Additionally, because by the time Oscar and his compatriots were captured, up until his release just a couple of months ago, the movement to free him grew into a multifaceted movement for mass decolonization, which he now leads. We'll get to Matt Meyer in a second, but first... Erica, why is this particular campaign around Oscar relevant to a broader conversation about resistance in the U.S.? Well, I think this campaign provides so many uh, useful lessons that are general to campaigns more generally. Um, for example, uh, one of the key features of this campaign was uh, the inside-outside strategy, where there was you know, a willingness and, a, and a, a demonstrated ability to engage in civil disobedience, mass mobilization, political organizing at the grassroots level. But there was also an inside game, meaning that there was lobbying uh, members of Congress, other elected officials. There was sort of putting pressure on local officials and others that might have any leverage um, over the status of Oscar um, and his um, imprisonment. And so uh, because of that, it really demonstrates, I think, the power of that kind of dual approach. Um, another thing is that this campaign was a 35-year campaign, which is kind of incredible in terms of its ability to maintain resilience over time, the core commitment of key members um, to sort of put real skin in the game and maintain um, a persistent approach to mobilization over the long term. Um, and the other thing is just that they, you know, they obviously succeeded um, in a really profound way in the end, um, where, you know, after 35 years, you'd, you'd have to be asking yourself, like, what are we doing this for if we can't win? Um, and this campaign is such a great example of how what seems impossible for literally decades suddenly becomes possible overnight. And it certainly would not have happened um, without this movement and its continual mobilization and pressure. And one other thing about this movement I think that's really key is that over that 35-year period, it went through lulls, it went through different kind of phases um, of activity, um, different types of creative approaches. 
Um, but one of the things that it was doing the entire time was expanding the the people that were um, allied with the movement um, and kind of continually building leverage among people that um, could make some kind of moral commitment or moral statement um, to the president of the United States in this case. So, you know, they got, um, you know, Archbishop Desmond Tutu to support the release of Oscar. They got the Pope to support the release of Oscar. And, you know, people like that um, on their on their own might not be um, able to leverage an outcome like this, but there's a cumulative effect. And over time, the more allies a movement is able to elicit, the the more leverage it has. And I think, and just overall, this movement has a lot of um, really key points um, that demonstrate how uh, nonviolent mass movements end up succeeding in the end. So, what do you think about this movement, and what makes it interesting for you? Well, as a protester, one of the things we have to face, especially under this security state, increased security state, is the fact that any of us could be labeled political prisoners at any time. When you look at some of the charges that people have been arrested for over the years, we've, we're starting to see our, our first wave of political prisoners come from the movement for black lives. I think about Big John in Ferguson, who was arrested for allegedly burning down the Quick Mart uh, over in Ferguson and is in jail to this day. And has trumped up charges, lost his case, and is currently um, being surrounded by people who are trying to appeal and see if we can get him out. Uh, there are others, uh, Baltimore, other other cities and states. And so when you look at the charge of seditious conspiracy, it's somewhat of a phantom charge, and that charge can be uh, wielded against any one of us at any time. So it's very important for us to be ready for that possibility because no one thinks it's going to happen to them until it happens. And then just purely from a solidarity standpoint, uh, the, the example of Oscar, the courage of him to refuse clemency under the Clinton administration because two of his comrades were not released at the same time, just inspires me to a greater level of solidarity with those who have gone before us. Um, I think of a friend of mine and a mentor, Baba Seku Odinga, also a political prisoner, currently residing in Oakland, for those who have paid the greatest price, and that is their lives, to be put in conditions that are inhumane for the course of their lives, no light, not being able to go outside, not, not being able to see, be with their families. They did this for the freedom of uh, people like you and me, and the price that they pay should not go unthanked. Our guest today, Matt Meyer, has been one of the key people behind the campaign to free Oscar. Matt is the national co-chair of the world's oldest and largest peace-building organization, the Fellowship of Reconciliation. He was a coordinator of the international leg of Oscar's Freedom Campaign since the late 1980s. His work in solidarity with the people of Puerto Rico, including the armed movements that Oscar was part of, was in no way hindered by his 40-year leadership in nonviolent resistance movements. This includes time as the War Resisters International Africa Support Network Coordinator and as a UN representative of the International Peace Research Association. Matt wrote the introduction to and helped edit Oscar's book, Between Torture and Resistance, which details the story of the Puerto Rican nationalist and includes a special foreword by none other than Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the Anatomy of Resistance. Thanks. Great to be here. A question that many might be wondering about uh, is why you, as a nonviolent activist, spent so much time supporting 
Oscar, uh, who was associated with violence as an activist and afterwards? So there are two basic answers to that question, and I think the first one goes back long before my time as an activist or an organizer or even as a, as a person on this planet. Uh, it was sometime in the early 1950s, uh, late, late 40s, early 50s, when a group of nonviolent activists from Fellowship of Reconciliation, War Resistance League circles, some of that radical post-World War II community of resistors, uh, got together in Harlem. This was mainly a group of white folk and tried to put together an ashram that was modeled on Gandhian principles and experiences. This is, of course, both a couple of years after Gandhi had been killed, but also it was just at the time that India was becoming independent. And the primacy of what seemed like a winning strategy in India and in the world was affecting many people. And so that these folks who were in our organizations who already had an inclination towards nonviolent action uh, were excited about the idea of setting up this special space, this Harlem ashram. But something also happening at this time, and now we're going into the, the early and mid-1950s, caught their attention. There was a Puerto Rican activist who had been in jail, who was considered a hero of the Puerto Rican movement, uh, Nationalist Party leader Pedro Albizu Campos. And he was actually in Harlem, in Harlem Hospital, recovering from basically cancer, radiation poisoning that he had always claimed uh, he got while in prison, possibly directed by the U.S. government. And there were lots of calls from lots of sectors of the movement for people to visit him. But these two activists, Ruth Reynolds and Jean Zwickel from FOR and WRL, went to visit him and struck up a friendship that would be a friendship for a lifetime. And in their conversations, amongst other things, Pedro Bizucampo said, it's great what you're doing building this ashram in tribute to Gandhi and the Indian independence movement. But there is an independence movement happening even closer to home for a colony that's not a British colony. It's not a Spanish colony. It's your colony. You have a special responsibility as U.S. citizens to look at the issue of U.S. colonization in Puerto Rico, in my home. And that pretty much did it. <laughs> the strength of uh, Don Pedro Bizucampos's personality and that connection made Ruth Reynolds and Jean Zwickel and their cohorts uh, really the premier solidarity activists through much of the 50s and 60s, the folks who were most well-known and to some extent to this day are most well-known as international solidarity activists with Puerto Rico, came from our organizations and from our circles. And I was aware of that history early on, and it seemed like no contradiction, certainly no contradiction for them, that not every tactic, not every strategy, not every political position was the same but the responsibility as anti-colonialists, as justice seekers, was still there. So I said there were two parts of the answer, and I guess the second part was that as I was coming of age uh, in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, looking at Central American solidarity work, looking at anti-apartheid work, and then again coming upon this recurring theme of Puerto Rico as a special colony of the U.S., I learned about the U.S. political prisoners, including from the Black Panther Party, including from the Plowshares movements, including the Puerto Ricans. And in that, 
the Puerto Ricans clearly were looking, uh, certainly by the late 1980s when I was getting most active, at questions of strategies and tactics. They were looking at not just making inroads beyond Puerto Rico, beyond the Puerto Rican diaspora in the U.S., but making inroads into the churches. They had some of their prisoners, one in particular, Alejandrina Torres, who was subjected to the worst torture probably of all of the Puerto Rican prisoners. Her husband was a leading United Church of Christ minister in Chicago. So they were looking to see how they could break into movements beyond their own circles. And as someone who had been part of the nonviolence movement for the previous decade around Central America and anti-apartheid issues as well as anti-draft, anti-nuclear issues, they first asked me if I would do some work in the interfaith world. But that also was connected very closely to the world of nonviolent action in terms of human rights international and in terms of secular nonviolence like War Resisters here in the States. And it was from the very first days clear that there was no real contradiction for them, and therefore not for me, that we could do this work together. Uh, in, in some ways, even by this time, I was taking the lead of a pan-Africanist pacifist, Bill Sutherland, who was one of my mentors, who always held to his basic beliefs in the power of nonviolent resistance, but also as a resistor and as a pan-Africanist who lived in Africa from 1953 through to the 21st century, till the time of his death, uh, he always said, our job, fundamentally, is not to tell other people how they should be waging their struggles. Our job is to be getting the boot of our government off of their necks. And so that seemed like uh, an important approach and an approach that I could deal with and that the Puerto Ricans I was working could deal with. It, it was only in an, I would say, um, evolving process, and I'm big on revolution, not evolution, but really it was an evolving process that in the years and then those years rolled into decades of working together, the Puerto Rican movement itself became more and more understanding of appreciative of, interested in, the power of nonviolent action. So I'll never forget when Alejandrina Torres, who I just mentioned, actually came out of prison at the very end of uh, Clinton's administration because President Clinton offered clemency to uh, a dozen of the Puerto Rican compatriots. Oscar was one of them, but he stayed in, and that's another whole series of conversations we can have. But when Alejandrina came out after President Clinton's uh, clemency, one of the things she said in an interview I did with her was, we learned from inside and outside that mass civil disobedience, that civil resistance could make a fundamental difference. And that was part of the process of dialogue and working together that could only happen through a camaraderie, through a shared understanding of how one moment in history is not all of history, and how making social change involves many tactics and strategies. You just talked about making a difference and how mass participation, mass demonstration can make a difference. It has in this campaign. And we've often talked back and forth as friends about how much in campaign work we get used to losing. And here we have a significant win. Tell us what you believe is the significance of this win with Oscar and what does it say about civil resistance and nonviolence in general in our country and world? 
Well, the win, and it is true, there are so many, not in Puerto Rico and not in the Puerto Rican diaspora here in the States, but so many non-Puerto Ricans, uh, including some, not all, but some in movements to free U.S. political prisoners, that were, were hesitant to embrace this as a great victory, that had a hard time celebrating in ways that seemed natural to all of us who were at the center of the campaign, and practically everyone in the Puerto Rican community. And that, I think, does have a lot to do with the general approach we have in the U.S. progressive movement, in the nonviolence movement and otherwise here in the States, that we just, it's, it's sort of a dour, defeatist, pessimistic, oh my God, everything is gloomy and bad all the time. And yes, certainly there's enough that's gloomy and bad. We could be depressed for, you know, a long, long time. But if we don't seize on to, if we don't capture those moments of victory, even if they're small, then we cannot sustain long-term struggle. It just doesn't get built through negativism upon negativism, or accentuating the negative at least. People have to have something positive to hold on to. And yeah, it could have looked at many years. I mean, it doesn't really, you know, on a certain level look like, oh my God, 35 plus years in jail, that's not a great victory. He lived a big, big chunk of his life behind bars. And yet, we were always working towards coming out. We were always working towards victory. And some of them were small victories, and then was, we got a big one uh, in, in May. But I think the real issue about celebration, the real significance, is that the 35-year campaign to free Oscar Lopez Rivera went from a point in the early 80s when he and his compatriots were first captured, and they were extraordinarily isolated. They were a group of people who, out of a sense of frustration, out of a sense of militancy, but I would say also in some ways out of a sense of desperation, felt like those bombings, those acts of really property destruction that was the main focus of the FALN and the Machateros and other organizations of that era, um, that felt like the only thing they could do to make a dent in the colonial reality of Puerto Rican-U.S. relations. And in thinking that, they were isolated, even within the Puerto Rican left. In the 35 years of Oscar's imprisonment and all of our growing up, all of our, of our evolution in building campaigns and building mass campaigns, and they were mass freedom campaigns, but they were fully intertwined with a campaign against the U.S. Navy in Vieques, fully intertwined with different anti-electoral campaigns and different UN testimonies over the decades around the question of colonialism in Puerto Rico. And so by the time Oscar walked out, by this, this last year, these last months, he has in some ways become the preeminent leader of a Puerto Rican voice for decolonization. And it's even a rhetorical difference. We'll talk about language later. But the fact of the matter is, the idea of working for independence and socialism seemed the cutting edge to many in the early 1980s. Now, the rhetoric is more towards decolonization, not because the hope of independence for Oscar and many of his compatriots doesn't still exist, but because there's an understanding that to build a broad unity, to do mass organizing that can actually win victories, the concept of decolonization is primary. It comes first. And then how 
Puerto Rico becomes decolonized, how that colonial relationship gets modified and changed and transformed, uh, that's a secondary question. But the fact of decolonization comes first, and I think that's another great gift that this mass organizing of 35 years gives us, and Oscar in many ways became and has become the center of that gift. I guess I'll say one more thing. Some of the rhetoric around Oscar, especially in the last years, uh, began calling him the Mandela of the Americas. And this was yeah, in part because... That. Yeah, I mean, it was in part because uh, some folks at a recent, several years ago, uh, OAS meeting, Organization of American States, some of the uh, leftist heads of state of uh, Venezuela, Cuba, etc., began using that phrase. It's also because, as you mentioned, um, Archbishop Tutu of South Africa and other anti-apartheid activists who were close to Mandela um, liked that analogy, so that phrase was used. But I think more and more, it's not simply a rhetorical vehicle to call attention to the case. We've seen a similar mass organizing in Puerto Rico, as was seen in South Africa, and we've also seen a transformation of the man, as we saw in Mandela. You know, Mandela was not the same man as he went in. When he came out of prison, he was a different, transformed man. And it's not to say that now, you know, Oscar Lopez Rivera is, you know, a great pacifist, you know, ideologue. Uh, no, like Mandela, he, you know, would never give up uh, some of his past ideals. He, he, he would never renounce some of the, the basic tenets, the principles of, uh, of his work and his history. At the same time, the idea of resistance and reconciliation, the idea of unity building, as opposed to a more focalistic, a more adventuristic, uh, a more isolated model, is on the table for Oscar the Man and for the Puerto Rican movement of 2017 and 2018 and beyond. And I think that transformation is born of the process of mass organizing. Now, you mentioned about the similarities between Oscar the person and Nelson Mandela the person. You alluded to there also being similarities between Puerto Rican organizing and that which happened in South African, under South African apartheid. As an organizer who was prominent in the campaign for Oscar, what strategies and tactics did you draw upon? Did you maybe innovate? in uh, looking back out at South Africa uh, from an organizing perspective? Well, I think one thing that's perhaps the, the, the foremost piece of it, in Puerto Rico itself, this was not so much in the international aspect of the campaign, the idea of the legitimacy of the sentence, the legitimacy of the government, the legitimacy of U.S. control, uh, was really focused upon and hit hard. You know, South Africa became ungovernable, not because there was a, an armed struggle or a war, but because people in multiple communities, from African colored and white, but also across class lines and, you know, from tiny towns to large cities in South Africa, withdrew from the fundamental institutions of that society, setting up their own schools, their own medical clinics, their own... You know, the, the whole idea that the ANC called for, African National Congress, of making South Africa ungovernable came to the fore uh, by the late 1980s. And so 
the idea of letting Mandela free, the idea of unbanning the banned organizations, was almost a, uh, <laughs> in some ways, a- an impossible to resist crumb to throw at the movement. It's like, well, we have to hold on to something, but we can't hold on to these ancient prisoners who, if they die in prison, we could be in even more trouble. There's some of that that happened in the South, in the uh, Puerto Rican movement as well. You know, it's not the same thing because uh, obviously we're dealing with a government that's essentially U.S. government control with Puerto Rican uh, officials on at least a gubernatorial level. And in the Puerto Rican case, there was this massive organizing where if people didn't withdraw specifically from voting or from electoral or from a particular service agency, they did withdraw their essential political buy-in to the idea that Oscar was a terrorist or a criminal. Clearly, Oscar, in the last five to ten years in Puerto Rico, was a patriot. It was almost irrelevant what he had done or what his politics were people from the statehooder movement that's more closely aligned to the Republican Party, people from the Commonwealthers associated with the status quo, and of course the independentistas as well, but well, well beyond the independentistas, people from all walks of life were saying, he's one of us. He's simply a Puerto Rican grandfather. He's now an artist who does these paintings of the Pope or of Gandhi or of Puerto Rican street scenes from his jail cell. It's time for him to come home. And that essentially broke down the idea that the Puerto Rican government or the U.S. government could criminalize one of their own. So that leads really well into our next question, which relates more to the interplay between what you might call the inside game and the outside game, something a lot of movements often have to grapple with or think about, where um, there are certainly often these community organizing options, there's mass organizing, there's civil disobedience as part of the outside game, but there are also many institutional measures, legal, electoral, and other advocacy approaches that really make up this inside game. And in, in the case of Oscar's release, it's clear that you know, there, there was a decision made by um, ele- an elected official to, um, to uh, change the outcome of um, his stay in prison. So can you talk a little bit about the relationship in this case between the inside-outside game and what that might mean for other movements um, with similar kinds of goals? I think one of the most important lessons of the Oscar campaign is this, uh, I would say, dialectical relationship between the two, this idea that we were not going to be effective unless we had both an insider and outsider strategy. And though this was not something we publicized externally, (laughs) uh, it's not something that we necessarily talked about, um, in a in a particularly public way, it was clear even before the thir- the twelve or thirteen the clemency offer of Clinton was made that we had to both get into the highest levels of executive decision making uh, in the U.S. government, the White House, at the same time as mobilize masses of especially Puerto Rican people and others supporters in order for those calls inside the White House to have any residency at all. So doing both was necessary, and this was, this was I would say, throughout the 90s, uh, a, a recurring part of our strategic focus um, in practice. I think my, my favorite story 
about this. And and again, this was not one that we talked about a lot. In some ways, we we try to deflect attention away from it as we chuckled. Um, the first major Puerto Rican organized uh, civil disobedience in front of the White House, where we had uh, one person for each of the imprisoned Puerto Ricans uh, symbolically stand uh, in front of the gates at Lafayette Park uh, or across the street you know, in front of the White House with one of the names of the Puerto Rican comrades until they were obviously loitering and then would be taken away. And at the same time as this uh, symbolic, important symbolic civil disobedience, because they had worked with us in the Plowshares movement, they had worked uh, with other folks in the nonviolent civil disobedience-oriented movements, but this was the first time that they were really coordinating it on their own, and there were Puerto Ricans getting arrested and hundreds of others across the street in Lafayette Park cheering them on. At the same time as this was happening, several of the lawyers were inside the White House having a meeting with the pardon attorney. And the timing was not coincidental. <laughs> and yet, we were not going to throw this in their face. It was a way of saying, we are prepared for both. We are prepared to have serious, high-level conversations about what clemency could mean. And we're ready to get arrested. We're ready to put our lives on the line. And I think, though, that dramatic moment, that single moment, uh, speaks well to the, the question of this dialectic. I think it, it is, as I say, something that ran throughout all of the campaigns. You know, there were some people within the left that criticized us these past few years uh, at working with as many elected officials. And there were huge numbers of elected officials, uh, not the one you were talking about, the President of the United States. But, you know, we have this major Puerto Rican congressman from Chicago. We have the Speaker of the New York City Council. We have the Mayor of San Juan, all with somewhat different politics. Um, and we had statehooders. We had a statehood um, mayor of, of Oscar's hometown in, in San Sebastian. Uh, we had not just Puerto Rican, but Dominican elected officials. You know, a, a huge number of the elected officials of Latino descent in the U.S. ultimately rallied behind the, the cause of freeing Oscar. And, you know, in part we did that because we knew we had to get to someone who would have President Obama's ear. That was just a basic. And so there was some criticism. Oh, my God, you're playing too much to electoral politics. You're just being taken over by the Democratic Party, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think on the one hand, we want it to be, we want to be sensitive to that because I think it is true uh, we were not going to have a winning campaign if that's all we did, if we relied upon those elected officials, even the best of them, if we suggested that those elected officials would be our leaders and we would wait and see and do whatever they told us. That wasn't going to work either. We were going to have to continue the mass mobilizing. And you know, for, for myself on the international level, that meant deepening the work with the Nobel Peace Prize winners and other international human rights figures. Um, in a way, that meant shaming the U.S. In a way, it also meant giving the president of the United States some cover. I mean, Clinton left the White House with tremendous right-wing backlash for what he did in his clemency offer. And he kept saying, but Archbishop Tutu and Coretta Scott King and a few other people said it was a good thing to do. And we wanted to give Obama the same kind of cover. But it's not in order to cover his, his butt. It's also to say politics works in a way that you line up more than one thing at a time. 
You, you, you have to attack a particular issue, whatever the issue is. You have to build a particular campaign without one singular tactic or strategy as the only thing. If we think we're going to win that way, we're not really having a very particularly good look at history. Most of history, be it revolutionary or reform, is won through victories that have a multiple of strategies and tactics used. Yeah, you've just talked about a huge coalition of actors um, who ultimately rallied uh, behind this cause. And you've also talked about, you know, some internal dissent or some controversy or some criticism. And obviously, every movement has uh, difficulties with trying to derive the proper strategy and and come to some agreement about this and, and maintain and expand coalitions over time. Um, so can you talk about what was the hardest thing about um, expanding this coalition over time and, and the 30-plus year history of this uh, movement and um, what you learned about that that might be relevant for other movements? I'm not sure if this was the hardest thing. I think maybe it was the most important piece. We, we operated for most of those 30 years with a fairly small disciplined core of people that stayed together. And I think we, especially, uh, maybe not exclusively on the nonviolent side of things, don't really talk about discipline in that way. Um, you know, some of our, our foremothers and forefathers, I spoke of Bill Sutherland, you know, they, they used to talk about, especially in the African context, they used to talk about uh, what would it mean to build a nonviolent West Point? What would it mean to build a structure of mass discipline coordination that wasn't violent, that wasn't armed, that wasn't a military force, but a counter-military force. And in some ways, that's what we did. You know, there was a really, uh, a fairly tiny group of people who had lawyers in it, but it wasn't lawyer-led, had elected officials in it, but it wasn't elected officials-led, had family members of Oscar and the other prisoners in it, but it wasn't just about satisfying the family members. It was about being organizers. And in some ways, that, that seems uh, maybe simple, doesn't seem particularly sexy. Uh, it's not about, you know, rock stars. And we did have some major, you know, performing artists who also joined us. But it really was about the door-to-door, -door, you know, campaigns of, and I guess now it's not so much door-to-door, -door, it's email-to-email -email or tweet-to-tweet. -tweet. But it was in the person-to-person -person building of a campaign from one group to another. And... There is a way in which there's a groundswell. You know, if you get a small group and, and then a smaller, and a, you know, there's a, you tell two people and then they'll tell two people. There's a truth to that, huh? We often don't try it. We don't even begin telling two. So we're not going to get to four and eight and 16. Um, but, but even as we grew, maintaining that core and keeping our eyes on the prize, saying, ah, okay, this is a defeat or this is a difficult time or this is a... A problem, you know. I mean, the election of of George Bush, uh, you know, was not a reason for great excitement or, or, or hope in terms of Oscar, who obviously, you know, in, in some ways, could have gotten out. He he was part of those given that deal by Clinton, and he chose not to, uh, in large part because he had two comrades who were not given that offer, and. Uh, that's, by the way, another piece that's misunderstood a lot. People have been saying in these last six months, well, he didn't want to renounce violence. No, that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, they were all willing. You know, what Oscar has said time and time again is uh, the whole movement set aside violence decades ago. 
but uh, but he was not willing to come out uh, with some of his comrades left behind. And also he was given a different offer than any of the others. He was said he could come out in 10 years' time. They was all going to get out now. He'd come out in 10 years. And he said, no, no, I'm not going to be part of some special conditions thing. But, uh, but you know, at that moment, um, we... It was easy to feel discouraged and feel like we were going to lose. Bush is president. He may be in for four years or eight years. We don't know. There's a turn in the country to the right. Uh, you know, maybe we're done for. Uh, and yet we had to fight against that. And we had to keep the core together to say, okay, we'll, we'll look at this strategy a different way. We'll look at the tactics a different way. We'll look at the campaign a different way. We'll elongate it. We'll stretch it. We'll sustain it. We'll be creative about our artwork. About our, you know, we we began uh, sometime after that building cells the exact same size as the cell that Oscar was in, and having people spend some time in those cells. Some years after that, the women's uh, movement. Uh, okay, he's been in jail thirty years. Well, we'll have thirty women, thirty-two women, thirty-three every year, an additional number, and we'll do different actions uh, to signify the number of years he's inside and our role as women leading this part of the movement. So all kinds of creative things to help sustain the movement in those lean years, and, uh, and we persevered. One thing that fascinates me about this campaign is the number of language barriers you had to cross to mobilize people. Not only was it English and Spanish barriers, you, there was also the nonviolent and violent um, barrier that was crossed uh, different forms of, of tactics and somehow some way uh, this movement wasn't didn't stop at an elite level of conversation it hit the people uh, right where they were at and this was truly a people's movement uh, where you had people from Puerto Rico people here on the ground at every level of society really pushing to free Oscar tell us more about the importance of language in the, in the movement and how you were able to navigate that, whether that was through everything from campaign literature to uh, the way in which you engaged media and thought about engaging different media forms to make uh, this, to create a campaign that truly spoke the language of the people. So I love that question because I think it speaks to the, the fundamentals of what it means to be an organizer at any point in history. Because, you know, the, the question is, how do I want to, to reach out? How do I want to make these two new people who aren't involved involved and have them turn on two more and two more and two more? So yes, that question of, of approach, of language, is key. I think in many ways, uh, the fact that we had this English-Spanish thing uh, only helped us uh, in a way because we realized that a lot of our work was about translation. And I, I always used to say that my expertise was translating English to English. I, I, you know, I came I've never of age, heard that before. That's great. You know, I, I came of age, I, I spoke about some of my work in the early 80s before I got involved in, in some of the political prisoner work and work with the Puerto Rican community with Central American solidarity activists. And it seemed like there was a whole group of, uh, of North Americans, of white folk in particular, who, who really were, were running away from the U.S. They were running to learn Spanish and to, to, to travel to Central America to become Sandinistas. 
And while, you know, that may have been a good and exciting thing, although it didn't seem to do the Sandinistas uh, too much good, they were voted out of power some years later, it, it became clear to me that we did not really need a bunch of gringos learning Spanish really, really well. We needed a bunch of gringos learning English really, really well. We needed to be able to speak to our own people, our own communities, as clearly, as succinctly, as articulately as possible to translate the struggles, the issues, the campaign goals of the Puerto Rican movement to the solidarity sectors that we were trying to organize. So learning Spanish was a, a secondary thing. It's not like it's a bad thing, but it wasn't the prerequisite. I also say this to some of the political prisoner activists today who seem to feel like the most important thing they can do is to become friends with the guys inside. And there are some women as well. And to me, yeah, some of them need friends and some of them need particular personal support people. But really what they need is organizers to help them get out and not be prisoners anymore. And so if you take that as the base, if, if you take as the base that what you need is to have good organizers, people with the skills to build campaigns. If you don't know how to do campaign organizing, okay, build actions. If you don't know actions, okay, build events. But begin to learn the multiplicity of skills to become an organizer. And so what does that mean? It means learning the language of who you want to speak to. And I'm not talking English and Spanish now. I'm talking about if you're a young Puerto Rican who doesn't speak Spanish, but you're in Chicago, you're going to learn how young Chicago Puerto Ricans or young New Yorkans in my town in New York uh, are hearing things. Is it through a hip-hop medium? No, there's something a little else. Is it through this sort of blend of Spanish music and hip-hop? You know, you're going to learn the language. Are you talking to primarily uh, UCC Church in the Bronx? Well, then you're going to learn that language. Uh, at a certain point in the campaign, we had a number of evangelical groups join the movement. Well, that's not a language many of us knew. And yet it was clear that the evangelical movement had a role to play, that there was a space within Puerto Rican society where that movement was having an effect, and there were people in that movement, in those churches, that were open to hearing the message. So you have to learn that language. You have to not suggest, oh my God, evangelicals, they are, there, they are therefore simply because of the way they pray, conservative. No, no, no. So we have, to, we have to learn how to be fluent in all the languages of all the peoples we're trying to affect. And often the, um, the base may be English, but our ability to speak to people is more than just about a common tongue. It's about an approach which is respectful, which is loving, which is fundamentally about saying we can rid this ill, this injustice together. And in fact, that's the only way we can. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Matt. And you mentioned this um, really kind of powerful thing that Bill Sutherland, Sutherland had said to you before, that it's not our job to tell other people how to wage their struggles. Our job is to get the boot of our government off of their necks. Um, so for those of our listeners in the United States, uh, can you uh, say a few things that they might do to get the boot of the U.S. government off of the Puerto Ricans' necks? 
Oh, I thought you were going to bring it to even contemporary non-Puerto Rican issues because we seem to have a growing number of boots in our country right now, uh, and a, a number of uh, <laughs> a number of necks we need to uh, relieve the pains of. Uh, look, yeah, I think it was said in the introduction. Puerto Rico is in a position of unprecedented economic crisis. Um, it's not a crisis that's Republican-made or Democratic-made. It's a crisis born fundamentally of a colonial relationship. And so I don't have a magic answer to how to resolve that problem, and I don't really think it's up to non-Puerto Ricans to say, ah, I think it should be this status option or that status option. I mean, part of why I love still working for and with Oscar is because you know, one of the things, this is a little Mandela or Gandhi-ish, and I don't want to, you know, I, I hate to idealize people. I don't idealize Oscar. But the fact of the matter is one of the things I love that he's done since getting out is he said, look, I, I'm so happy to be here, and I'm going to work uh, independently. I'm not going to join any of the existing organizations. I'm going to set up my own organization to look at decolonization. But the first thing I want to do, and I want my foundation to do, is I want to travel to every little corner of Puerto Rico and do listening. I have to listen to my people. Not to figure out whether we should decolonize, that's not the point, but to figure out how. To figure out what needs doing first and second and next. And so to me, uh, I'm going to evade uh, that question a little bit simply by saying it's the role of international solidarity now at this moment to be careful listeners as well, to be careful listeners to Oscar and to others in the Puerto Rican movement. Uh, again, not about whether to decolonize. Uh, you know, the UN has long since said that colonization is a thing of the past, uh, that it's not the way in which nations or peoples should relate to one another. So the question, and, and actually in the Puerto Rican sense, there's really no one uh, of any significance on the island saying that the relationship as it is, is acceptable. So whether you resolve it through becoming the 51st state or through some altered status quo, slightly changed and adjusted, or through full independence, uh, our job as international solidarity, solidarity activists, international human rights people, people interested in reconciliation and justice and peace, we have to be careful listeners and we have to be clear that the Puerto Ricans will be leading their own struggles and their own liberation, and it's our job to back them up and not assume that the U.S. Congress or the U.S. President or the U.S. courts can or should have any say over the decisions they make. Thank you so much, Matt. This has been a really informative and illuminating conversation. I think there are so many lessons that other movements can learn from what you have spoken about today. So we really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. just another nigga thinking that he has. The Anatomy of Resistance is brought to you by the Fellowship of Reconciliation. We would like to give a special thanks to the University of Denver for giving us space to record. Thank you to Abigail Gibson for technical assistance, as well as Anthony Porch, local MC in Denver for the beats. 
Until next time, this has been the Anatomy of Resistance. I'm just here with my brothers to get a meal with my mother. I want a future. I don't want to die. I'm not the smartest, but I don't think mama want to cry. Men teaching their kids walk on the other side. When they see 509 out of nine times, I ain't fronting. It's really something. Our lives different. It's not a weapon. I'm trying to paint us a bigger picture. I'm not a threat. Just a big bro to my little sister. Somebody love me. You got to trust me. I'm hoping you ain't taking this from me for thinking that I have freedom. Freedom to write and be who I ought to. I don't want a problem. I want a proper piece of the pockets.